Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. How are we doing, Covenant family? Good to see all of you gathered here this morning in front of me and to all of you watching from home. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a delight to join you this Sunday morning. Join me in Genesis chapter 50. That's actually the reference for the passage that Pastor Phil read for us at the outset of our time together. We begin a brand new series today, just sort of reflected in that bumper video for you. And so I just want to begin by asking this question. In the middle of the year that we have seen with Christmas coming and wondering, some of us, how many of the things that we normally do we're actually going to be able to pull off, some of us struggling with loved ones who are sick, others struggling with economic impact of all the things that have been happening over the last several months. What are you afraid of? Let's think. There's a long list. I asked that question on all my social media outlets, and can you imagine how many answers I got? What are you afraid of? The responses came very, very quickly, and I I would suggest again, given the year we've had, none of that should surprise us. Uh, Fear is a very real thing in a year like this year. And so we're going to spend three weekends, starting today, looking at the subject of unhealthy fear. Now, there's, there are some healthy fears. We teach our children to fear a hot stove and to fear playing in the street. There, there's some things that are, that are healthy. What I'm talking about are unhealthy obsessions that can paralyze you in a moment like we are all experiencing right now. In fact, there's a recent healthcare article that pointed to the negative effects of allowing unhealthy fear to dominate your life. It can result in any or all of the following, an inability to relax. Anybody feel that way? Who besides me has more on more than one occasion over the last eight months not been able to get a good night's sleep? Yeah, see all those hands are going up? I bet they're on the other side of that camera too. I can't relax. Number two, a greater propensity for panic. Everything that happens gets treated like a four-alarm emergency because you're already kind of in alert mode. Number three, a weakened immune system. That's something really helpful in the middle of everything we're going on, uh, going on around us right now. Number four, survival mode, which is another way of saying fight or flight response. It's one extreme or the other, particularly when it comes to conflict and your relationships with other people. Number five, depression. Number six, Heart disease, because you're overworked from this bombardment of stress hormones. Number seven, a lack of confidence. Number eight, missing out. Even if you're physically present because your mind is just not there. Number nine, memory loss. And this is real for all of us, isn't it? It's real for all of us. In fact, let let me give you a few answers to that question I asked. What are you afraid of on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram? The answers poured in. Some of them are going to make you laugh. In fact, the very first one, I mean within seconds, this was the first response I got. Running out of coffee. I can kind of relate to that, actually. Then came some more serious ones. Anarchy. Losing a child failing my family, mental illness, losing my mind. 
One of our minority sisters wrote, I genuinely do believe that all lives matter, but as an African-American woman, I'm afraid for myself and my family and my friends. Another said, I'm afraid because most of my family don't know Jesus. Another still, I'm afraid I won't be able to protect my family from whatever is coming. And then in the middle of all that, some comic relief. I'm afraid of running out of Bluebell ice cream. That was from a Texan. I'm afraid of not being able to live independently. Afraid of not being accepted and loved by others. I'm afraid of dying alone. I'm afraid of my house catching fire. I'm afraid of bears. I'm afraid of snakes. I'm afraid of the continued hate and division and where it's going to take us as a nation. I'm afraid of persecution. I'm afraid of going blind. Given the fact that it's in my family, I'm afraid of ALS or dementia or Alzheimer's. One pastor's wife actually wrote, we're moving to a brand new ministry field and more than anything else, I fear having no authentic friends. Cancer, spiders, snakes, being locked in a tight space, not being good enough. I would suspect some of you had a list in your mind and as I ticked off the, the number of things on that list, you've added to your own list. All those fears have amplified over the last year because we are surrounded by a culture that is in crisis mode. And this is a crisis unlike you and I have faced in our lifetimes, if for no other reason than because we can't get away from it. This isn't like a tornado or a hurricane struck where we happen to live and the crisis is limited to a limited to a particularly geographic locale, and if we want to get away from the stress for a few days, we just hop on an an airplane and we go somewhere where the crisis is not. There's no airplane ride you can take where you will not land and that crisis will not greet you. This is global. Unlike anything we've ever seen before, at least those of us who are alive right now, it is absolutely inescapable. But here's the good news. If you're a child of God, you can defeat fear in the middle of it. And so here's what we're going to do over a three-week period, and I'm going to give these to you in reverse order. We're going to start, we're actually going to end this in January. First week I come back from Christmas vacation with this promise, God will deliver us from this crisis. So yeah, thank you, yeah. Yeah, I knew there were some people around here to believe that. God will deliver us. Now, how that's going to come, I can't predict. Here's what I know. I know that the Bible tells me there is another world coming. Not only that I'm going to get beyond a point where I'm going to have to put on a mask everywhere I go and where I'm going to have to stay socially distanced and where I can't go, go to a football game and I'm wondering when the Rams are actually going to get to play and all this. Not only do I think that is probably coming to an end, but there's something better even beyond that. There's coming a day when there will be no sickness. There's coming a day when there will be no conflict. There is coming a day where all the scales will be balanced and the Lord Jesus will rule in peace. That day's coming. That day's coming. Revelation 21 gives us a sense of what that day is, is going to consist of. And, and I think one of the things that we're going to learn in this series is how to long more for that day. Not, not, not even for a year from now when we're beyond where we are, but even for something better than that. He will deliver us from this moment. Next week, we're going to learn why that promise is good. It's because our God is with us in the current crisis. Whatever's going on with you, however the the global uh, environment has affected you personally and your family 
personally. God is with us globally. God is with you individually in the middle of this. And we're going to see that in, in stories that we read about the ways that, that he was with his first disciples. But today we're going to begin with a hard one. You really can't get the breakthrough that you need or, or that you long for in week two or week three, as I've described it, at least not, not in a way that, that Scripture talks about, not with a degree of freedom that God wants from us, unless we begin by explaining the providence of God in crisis. He brought us here. See, it's fun to think about it. He's going to take us out of this. There's a better world coming. It's a little harder to admit God brought us here. It is God's intention that we be in the mess we're in right now. It is God's good intention that we be in the mess that we're in right now. And the doctrine that the scriptures teach that cover this category is the doctrine of providence. Divine providence, it's among a list of other things taught in scripture that can be very hard to understand, even harder to accept, uh, until you see it worked out practically in your life. You, you can read all the books on it you want. You can wax philosophical in an ivory tower, but until rubber meets the road, kinds of life situations confront you and you see your way through them and from the other side, you look back on them and you begin to see how God was at work. Really, it is only in those experiential moments that you fully understand providence. For centuries, followers of Jesus have been trying to get their arms around exactly what this means. One document, I think, uh, as succinctly as possible, uh, describes this doctrine. It's a, it's a document that was drafted in 1859 called the Abstract of Principles. It is uh, a document that is among the founding confessional documents, both of the seminary from which I graduated and another one that I teach. So my signature is on this document, meaning I believe what I'm about to read to you. And I believe it with all my heart that the scriptures teach the following. God from eternity, before you existed, before this planet that we are on that is spinning existed from that moment, decrees or permits all things that come to pass. He perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, yet so as not in any wise to be the author or approver of sin or to destroy the free will and responsibility. Of intelligent creatures. So, so basically what we're learning here is this, that God ultimately works out everything that he desires in this world that is taught explicitly and clearly, I believe, in the Bible. It's also a doctrine that resists oversimplifying, which is going to be hard for a bunch of pragmatic Westerners. We like for everything to fit in a box, don't we? We like to be able to check boxes. We like for things to be able to fit very neatly and very cleanly in categories. And it's why when we talk about something like providence, that we tend to move either to one extreme or the other. Because there's one thing about extremes. They're simple. They're really simple. They, they don't take into account the complexity of life. The fact that, yes, truth is black and white, but the lives we live are living color. Living color. So I want to describe a couple of those extremes. The first is determinism. Some of you may lean, depending on your personality, the way you think, your family upbringing, your life experience, you may need to resist determinism 
It means that everything in your life is predetermined and completely beyond your control. History is fixed. It is unalterable, including every free choice you make. In other words, a determinist would say it wasn't really free choice. You just thought it was. And sometimes this is pejoratively called fatalism, and it's based less in what the Scriptures teach about the sovereignty of God and really more in, in a fatalistic Greek philosophy. That's determinism. On the other end of the spectrum is what's called libertarianism. I'm not speaking there about the political philosophy so much as a philosophical school of thought that says really just the opposite of determinism. Everybody on the planet is a completely free agent, and they can do whatever they want. And the result of that means life is full of things like chance, karma, luck. You won't ever hear your pastor use words like that. They don't exist. And the future, not just your choices, but the whole future, it's completely open. And no one, including our God, if there even is one, knows what's going to happen next. You are fully in control. You're the one in the driver's seat. William Ernest Ensley was a 19th century poet. He wrote a poem called Invictus. I'm going to wager most, if not all, of the people in front of me or watching me have probably never heard of that poem, probably never heard of William Ernest Ensley unless you studied poetry in college. But I would equally guarantee anybody in front of me or watching who's ever been to a graduation ceremony has heard at least two lines from that poem. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's libertarianism. And when we look at what the Bible teaches us about divine providence, it's sort of like looking at a doctrine that is a proverbial monkey wrench. All these delicate gears that you see in determinism on the one hand, libertarianism on the other, everything fits neatly, nicely, all the T's are crossed, all the I's are dotted, and the doctrine of divine providence is a divine monkey wrench slung right into the middle of all of it because providence doesn't resolve easily. Don't you hate that? Doesn't it really stink that life doesn't always resolve easily? You ever had that experience? And you go, why can't I understand what's going on? But, but can we be honest? Any genuine, true philosophy of life is like that. If it's true to life, it's not going to resolve easily because life isn't simple. It's not easy to figure out. Life is complicated, life is hard, sometimes it's impossible to understand. And, and when life becomes hard to understand, Christians for centuries have, to, have turned to the doctrine of divine providence for comfort. I know there's a God, and I know he is in control of all these things. But the issue with providence, and the issue more specifically with providence not resolving itself easily, is that sometimes providence is painful. We've been doing a lot of, having a lot of conversations about vaccines lately, haven't we? About nine years ago, I was offered one. I was on my way to Southeast India uh, for a trip with the organization that I was working for at the time, the Mid-Maryland Association of Churches, about 64 churches. We were, my role was basically to collaborate and coordinate the, the mission efforts of all 64 of those churches. One of our projects was in Southeast India, and at this particular time of year, there was a little bit of an elevated, elevated risk for contracting something called Japanese encephalitis. Now, the, the chances that I was actually going to contract this were, were in the single digits. Uh, I'm going to be in the city. I'm not going to be out in the bush. It's not the rainy season, so it's not the highest risk. But the risk itself uh, wasn't just contracting the disease. It was what the disease could permanently do to you. Mental incapacitation in its worst forms, a, a vegetative state, 
still, I, I, can I just be honest with you? I don't like needles, right? I'm anxious about all this being over, but personally, I don't like needles. I just don't. And I remember having a conversation with my board, eight of those men standing around. They were the ones that held me accountable as I led this organization. I said, guys, I just don't, I just don't think I'm going to do that. It, really low chance, all these different variables that I threw out at them, and I said, I'm, just, I'm not taking a shot. And this is what they said. They said, Joel, we love you, and we love your family, and we love Amy and the kids. And so here's the deal. You don't have to get the shot if you don't want to, and you don't have to go to India if you don't want to. But if you want to go to India, you're going to get the shot. Okay. I'm a man under authority. I remember a few days later sitting in a medical office in Columbia, Maryland, getting that shot. That needle was long, and it was painful. I'm not just talking about the needle. I'm talking about the vaccine. I've never in my life felt like someone was filling my muscle tissue with cement until that day. I literally did not have the use of my left arm for about a day after each one of those shots. I had to have two of them, two of them. I developed symptoms, one of, them, one of which caused me to have to be out of work for about a day. Providence is like that inoculation. It'll protect you from some things. It will bring you comfort. It will give you greater assurance, but it hurts. And sometimes it will not provide that protection without first stretching and possibly even traumatizing your soul a little bit. Here's the good news. If you look long enough, and if you look hard enough, you can see providence clearly in life. And, and this morning, we're going to look at a story that is a, a phenomenal, I think probably one of the greatest examples of divine providence given to us in the Bible. It starts, actually, if you want to read kind of the story of Joseph's life, uh, Genesis 37 all the way through to Genesis 50. But the real bigger story actually starts back in Genesis 12. God has promised our first parents, Adam and Eve, as a result of the fall, as a result of the sin curse, I'm going to send somebody to do something about this. And, and a few generations later, he selects a man named Abraham. And he says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to extend it see the stars, see the sand on the beach. Your descendants will be more than that. And through your bloodline, I'm going to bring about that seed that I promised in Genesis chapter three. And through you and your kin, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. Now that's, that's quite a, an impressive thing to tell to a man who's 99 years old, whose wife is 75 and who have no children. All right. So this is, this is a miracle when not too many years after that promise, they miraculously welcome a young boy named Isaac. A generation after Isaac, Isaac and his wife Rebecca welcome two twin boys, Esau and his younger brother Jacob. A generation after that, we find that younger brother Jacob having 12 sons of his own. Now here's a, a little bit of a catch in the story. Ten of those come from his first wife Leah, who was basically kind of a almost a mail order bride, not somebody he was in love with, not somebody he really enjoyed being around, someone he was tricked into marrying. And the other two boys come from the woman that he really loves, a second wife, and no, I don't mean in chronological order, I mean in a polygamist household. We talk a lot about sexual sin in the church. Well, this was one of the earliest, polygamy. And Jacob loved Rachel. And because he loved Rachel, he loved the children of Rachel more than he loved his own, his other 10 children. And the great-grandson of Abraham, 
who is the focus of the narrative that Pastor Phil just read to us, that young man is one of those sons of Rachel. His name is Joseph. So this is his background, all right? Born into a polygamist household, full of favoritism, both at the wife level and at the children level. So, so by default, if you grew up in a dysfunctional family, you're going to find a kindred spirit in Joseph, this favorite wife. He grows up in that dysfunctional family. And early in his, lo- his life, when he's still the youngest brother, he has a dream. And it, and it involves his older brothers. And, and he gathers his brothers together, decides to tell them about this dream. He says, I had this dream that we were binding sheaves of wheat together in the field, and my sheep stood up straight, and yours bowed down to me. And guys, I, I think this means you're going to work for me one day. Now, now, who in here has got a brother, an older brother in particular, and you're hearing that story, and you're like, yeah, he should have kept that to himself. Right. If you've got an older brother and he's bigger than you and you have a dream where you're the chief executive officer and he's pumping your gas, keep it to yourself for your own health. These older brothers, they don't like this. They are tired of the little brother and they go, you know what? This kid's too much. He's got to go. And so one day he comes out to check on their work and they jump him and they rough him up really bad, they throw him into a pit. And just about the time they sit down to eat a meal, they look up, and they see the Midianites, these, these wandering traders, and, they, they, and Judah, one of the brothers, says, you know what, it's, t- it's about time we got something for our trouble out of this kid. Let's sell him. So they sell their younger brother as a slave to the Midianites. They bloody his coat, they take it back to their father Jacob, and they lie to their father, saying the son has been murdered, killed. So Joseph is now a slave at the hands of his own brothers. Eventually, he gets sold to a really upper middle class, highly influential, very powerful man in Egypt named Potiphar. Potiphar very quickly recognizes that Joseph is a, a good young man. He's got, a, he's got a good mind for business and administration. He's a hard worker. He's eager. And so it doesn't take very long between the time he comes into that household until the time Potiphar basically gives him everything. And he says, you are now in charge of my entire estate. So if we're in the 21st century, here's the deed to the property. Here's access to the banking app. Here are all my passwords. Everything I have is yours to manage. It's a really high position of trust. The only issue is, Potiphar's not the only one who notices this hard-working hard young man. Potiphar's wife takes notice as well. If you ever thought cougar wives were a new thing, you haven't read the Bible. This woman goes after this young man on several different occasions, the last of which she's literally trying to rip his clothes off of him, and he escapes, leaving behind the clothes he had managed to forcibly remove, and then we see the cruelty of a scorned woman. She screams rape. Joseph ends up in an Egyptian prison. Over the next several chapters, we see that prison experience described for us. More hope, followed by more betrayal, more disappointment, things you think are going to work that ultimately don't work, until finally, Pharaoh himself learns of this young man. 
Specifically, there's this young man in one of my prisons that has the ability to interpret dreams, and I need to talk to this young man because my seers can't tell me anything, and I've been having some crazy stuff. Like, I stopped eating pizza after 9 o'clock at night, and these dreams are still coming, and I don't know what they mean. And so Joseph comes into the throne room of Pharaoh and explains, what is this? What is this? Big, fat, plump sheets of grain being swallowed up by thin, barely edible sheets of grain. Big, fat cows swallowed up by little, bitty, skinny cows. What's about to happen here? And Joseph says, Egypt's headed to a recession. That's what's happening. Famine is coming. But here's the good news, king. We can get ready for it. Using his mind, using his skill, using his ability, he prepares Egypt for that coming fiscal cliff. And because God uses Joseph through all of those experiences to spare Egypt from ruin, Pharaoh names Joseph his regent. This kid goes from being the favored son to the hated brother to the slave to the manager of the household to a prisoner to now the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation in the world. Up, down. Up, down. Up, down. Who's lived a life that seems maybe just a little bit like that? This is Joseph's life. God has taken him through all of this so that he can lead Egypt to be prepared for a coming famine. But no one else is ready when it finally comes, including Jacob's family. And so for the first time now, probably 30 years, the brothers are about to be reunited. They come into Joseph's presence, not recognizing their brother. They fulfill that original dream, and they bow to the second in command in all of Egypt. They don't recognize their brother, but their brother recognizes them. And now he has all the power and all the privilege and all the advantage over them. What would you do? Well, Joseph has to remove himself twice in order to grieve deeply over everything he's been through, over everything that, that his brothers, by their own hand, have forced him to go through. But when he finally reveals who he is, he forgives his brothers. He embraces them. He calls for the rest of the family to join him in Egypt, including a father that he's not seen in decades and a younger brother named Benjamin who's been born that he's never seen before. And the basis of this forgiveness and this reunited, reuniting of this family, you know what it is? It's the providence of God. Look at verse 20 of Genesis 50. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Let's talk for just a few moments about our connection between that story and, and our story. What is the connection? See, here's the thing about fear in crisis. Most of the things we fear are never going to happen to us. Isn't that good news? Most of the things we worry about, they're never going to occur. Uh, but occasionally, we're going to get hit. Occasionally, we're going to get punched in the gut. Every time I read this story, I pray, God, would you help me possess as non-anxious a presence in the face of hardship or in the fear of hardship 
that Joseph did. And the way we reach that place is by understanding three unshakable things about the doctrine of providence that will bring that comfort. Here's the first one. Providence transforms. Providence transforms. Look at verse 18. His brothers also came, all right, chest stuck out, beat him up, throw him in a well, brothers. They came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. Sometimes God uses history to break you because you're too proud. Sometimes God uses circumstances in life to put us in a place of absolute dependence on him because he knows our hearts in that moment. He's known my heart in the past that I will not otherwise submit. Some of you know that are a little closer to me, some of the most magnificent, intimate moments I have ever had with the Lord have come when I was absolutely sick as a dog and could not even get out of bed because I couldn't do anything else but pray. I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. I could throw up. I could do that. But I couldn't do anything else. There's nothing else to do. Providence will humble us. It will transform us. And this is a good gift from a gracious God. We speak about the grace of God in such cheap ways these days that that we miss that that grace grace is a terrible thing sometimes. It's a wonderful thing as well. But we, you know, we, we use this phrase like, well, let's just show them some grace. And in, in today's world, that's become synonymous with, well, just ignore their sin. Ignore their boneheadedness. But real grace doesn't do that. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God was done with this planet. He said, I'm killing everybody. And then he made a decision. I'm going to show favor to one man and his family. I'm not going to kill everybody. I'm not going to do it. And then he put that man and his family, including his in-laws, on a box with a bunch of stinky animals for a year. Grace is not easy. It's not easy. It takes a dysfunctional family through some very tough times In order to reunite them in a foreign land, it takes a young bratty punk and throws his life into turmoil to make him what he needs to be so that he can eventually save his family. When Paul in Romans 8.28 says, we know that to those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. This this was a man well-versed in the Old Testament, brothers and sisters. This is precisely the sort of thing he was talking about. It wasn't that, that coffee cup experience that we often appeal to. We need to learn through the toughest times to see God's grace at its most powerful. So in the middle of a moment like this, whatever you're going through, here's your question. Here's your question. What should I be learning? How should I be changing? And let me tell you why. Because if you don't do that, there's really only one other place you can go mentally. And that is this, well, God must be some kind of masochist. Why is he doing this to me? God is not a masochist. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation assures us that there is a divine, holy, good, unadulterated, holy, pure, and loving intention in everything he decrees or permits in this world or in your life, including things that hurt. 
providence transforms. Secondly, providence, if we understand it correctly, it reassures. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? It's a rhetorical question. It's his statement to his brothers. I don't want you to be afraid of retribution. I don't want you to be afraid of starvation. I don't want you to be afraid of my lack of forgiveness because I recognize the place I stand is exactly where the Lord wants me to be at this moment. And I also understand that he took me through all those other things, even now in this part of my life that I don't understand so that I could get to this point. I am in the place of God. The late F.W. Favor puts it this way, God's will does not come to us in the whole, but in fragments, and generally in small fragments. You can't figure it all out. And so you merely must believe, and there's a twofold recognition in Joseph's statement here. Number one, I am not in control. How much comfort that realization is to you depends on how much control you think you have to have, doesn't it? Here's the thing, my desire for control over a situation that I can't control, you know what it does? It gives me more fear, not less. More anxiety, not less. More drama, not less. How many spouses have I talked to over the last eight months? No, I'm not giving away any names. I wouldn't dare do that. But, but, if, if, but if you've never talked to me and you've got a spouse that's driving you insane because they're freaking full of drama and they won't leave it alone and no matter what you can do, you can't calm them down, it, <laughs> you're not alone. That's just all I'll tell you. You have to understand that you're in the place of God. All right? If, I, if I've got to control it, you know, you know what that does? It puts all kinds of pressure on me that really shouldn't be mine. I might mess it up. Once I recognize there's nothing I can do to alter the measure of history apart from the hand of God, that's the moment when I also realize he's far better able to handle this than I am. And he will be okay. I am at this moment and every moment that came before and every moment that came after exactly where God wants me to be. Now, for some of you, that does not immediately make things better for you. You hear the amens in the room right now and you're like, what is wrong with those people? For some of you, it makes it far worse in your mind because of particular things you've been through. And so I want to be really clear here because some of you have been the victims of violence. You're like, and I'm not even identifying anybody. I'm not looking at any particular faces right now or thinking of anybody who's watching from home. I, I just know this statistically. It is true. You have been mistreated. You have been physically assaulted. You have been sexually assaulted maybe even as a child, and, and, and all those experiences now are coming back to you, and you're hearing everything I'm saying, and you are rightfully saying, Pastor, are you saying what I think you're saying? So I want, if that's you, I want you to hear something. I want you to hear something from my heart here that I believe with all my heart is based in the text of God's Word. That question is legitimate. It deserves an answer. So let me tell you what I'm not saying. I am not, number one, telling you that God approves of what happened to you. He doesn't. Number two, I'm not telling you that God is not angry at what happened to you. 
He is. I, I, when I speak with rape victims, assault, sexual assault victims in particular, they, they often some of the initial guilt that they feel is because they're so angry. And I'm like, you have a right to be angry. God is angry that this has happened to you. Number three, I am not saying that the people of God should not seek justice when certain things happen. We've taken great measures around here, our staff will tell you, to protect each other from that very thing, especially our children working with organizations like A Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment and training all of our folks in Child Safe. And you can rest assured when we come out from under COVID, that protective mechanism and culture will extrapolate beyond children to others. Any church that uses the providence of God as an excuse to look the other way at injustice, especially around a child. You know what Jesus said about that? You offend one of these little ones, you'd be better off to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea. It would be better for that man if he was never even born. We seek justice at covenant. It's not what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying. To any of you who may have been victims of something horrible like that, I am promising you this based on my best understanding of God's word. Our loving Heavenly Father will not allow any suffering or trauma or bad experience or victimization to go unpunished. It's either going to happen in this world or, God, you pity that individual if it happens in the next one. He will also never, ever, ever allow a situation to be unredeemed or without purpose. Never going to happen. Am I in the place of God? That's, that's Joseph's rhetorical question. Is not the Lord going to use this in my life and in the lives of others? Let me encourage you to let us hear your story. Your story could bless some other people around here. We have one of our pastor's wives and a deacon who's going to be sharing her story in January on Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's a story she shared before. It's a story that caused a dam to break around here and lots and lots of women got some healing through that. You might, she's going to be sharing it again in January, but you might be the next one in line to even stand in a place like this and demonstrate the grace of God and the power of God in the providence of God that can bring healing. Because our God won't just heal. He multiplies healing. Providence transforms. Providence reassures. And thirdly, finally, providence redirects. This brings us back to verse 20. As for you, speaking to the brothers, you meant evil against me. Yeah, I haven't forgotten what happened 30 years ago. But God meant it for good. That's why I can forgive what happened 30 years ago. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph doesn't excuse or look past what has been done to him. You intended this for evil but joseph is by god's grace able to look at the bigger picture god he recognizes in this moment god am, am i in the place of god it's not just my story it's this wider story i'm the great grandson of abraham and god is now working through me to bring about that promise and in this moment in history to keep that promise by sparing an entire nation from starvation and this is only the beginning 
by the way, of what he's using Joseph to do because the parallel of this story is the story of Jesus when we get to the New Testament, the central figure of all of Scripture. Because in the life of Joseph, we see the life of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We see it prefigured. Jesus was our brother. Jesus went voluntarily into a foreign land for our rescuing. Jesus was favored of his father. Jesus willingly became a slave, a bondservant on this earth. Jesus was subjected to mistreatment and mocking and was unjustly tried and killed. And because of his obedience, he rose both from the dead and to the highest position of power and might, a name that is above every name. And 2,000 years later, Just like Joseph, but in a much bigger and more universal way, Jesus still seeks and saves the lost. From the greatest of all possible evils, the execution of a perfect man, God brought about the greatest possible good, the salvation of his people. And you can be one of those people. You can be one who, even in the midst of great hardship, sees beyond himself and trusts in a good and sovereign God who is working above it and through it all. And no matter what happens, whether or not you ever see the bigger picture in this life, you can move through that and not be afraid. Not be anxious. There was a wise old pastor who was said to have this marvelous gift of ministering to people in crisis, chronic illness, sudden death, those kinds of things that happen in life. He had an old bookmark in his Bible. Some of you have seen these bookmarks. It's basically paper, but then it's got thread in it. And on the underbelly of that marker is all the thread that that needs to come together to make the pattern that's on top of the bookmark. And so underneath, it's just a big knotted mess. It doesn't look like anything. And he would teach people in crisis about the providence of God by pulling out that bookmark and flipping it over and showing them the ugly side of the bookmark. Look, it just looks like a tangled mess. It kind of looks like your life right now, doesn't it? And then he would flip it over and demonstrate for them that all that knotted, tangled mess on the other side of that bookmark perfectly and beautifully spelled out, God is love. Our lives involve people, events, relationships, suffering. We've encountered it together as a church family, as we've sought to minister to the vulnerable during these last eight months. That that just makes everything look meaningless. Everything looks tangled up. Everything looks so incredibly cruel. The scriptures, the word of the Lord tells us that the reason they appear that way is because we are at this moment incapable of seeing the whole pattern. And the question is simply this, are we going to believe the word of the Lord? Look at this story. Look at what God did. And that's just a glimpse, by the way, just a glimpse. I have a a book that I read almost every year written by a pastor who's retired now. His name's John Piper. It's called The The Supremacy of God in Preaching. And one of the things I, I think it's on page two, like it's really, really early. He says this, he says, God is going to hide from you most of what he does through your preaching. Occasionally, he will pull back the curtain. He will show you little glimpses of what he's doing so that you can be assured of his blessing, but he will never show you everything to the extent that you start thinking you can live without his blessing. 
For his aim, preacher, is to exalt himself, not you. See, it's true for guys like me as well. He doesn't always show us everything that he's doing. Sometimes we may not see until we get to heaven everything that he's doing. But he occasionally, even in his written word, gives us a place where anytime we want, we can go to the word, we can read the story, and we can see there are patterns. There was one then, and there is one right now. I might not see it. I might be a little bit more like Joseph in prison than I am Joseph second in command in all of Egypt, but I believe it's there because God has done it before. God will do it again. And then read the story. The grand narrative that, that overshadows all of these other smaller stories in the Bible, and you can see this, God's love and his providence, they're inextricably linked, and they're right there. They're right there. They're hiding in plain sight right there in your Bible, ultimately expressed in a bloody cross and an empty tomb. God loves you. God is in control. God will see you through this. God has brought you here. Do you believe it? Because the moment you do, you start living with no fear. Heavenly Father, I pray for our people today. I pray for those watching as well as those in the room right now. Father, for the angst, for the fear, for the doubt, for, for anything else, Lord, that, that's got our lives sort of tangled up in a knot, Lord, I, I just pray for healing. Lord, I pray that mentally, spiritually, and in every other way, that your presence through what you have spoken, the truth that is in your word would overshadow everything, Father, that is in every part of every life that's in front of me or listening to me. I pray for those who've never received you as Lord and Savior. Father, that they would understand that Joseph is merely a precursor to Jesus and that Jesus seeks and saves the lost. And Father, may they give their lives to you today. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.